I want to begin this morning's message with a, a question that I, I mean to ask very seriously. Uh, it's not just a hypothetical. I really want you to answer this question in your own heart. What mighty work do you want to see God accomplish in your life right now? What mighty work do you want to see God do in your life right now? What great thing are you hoping and praying he will do for you? Maybe it's a mighty work of sanctification in you. To free you from sin. To grant you repentance. To change you from the inside out and make you different than who you are today. To make you more like his son Jesus. Maybe you are praying that God will do a mighty work of sanctification in you. Maybe you're hoping for God to accomplish a mighty work through you in evangelism. To prepare someone's heart to hear the gospel, to open a door of opportunity to share the gospel, to give you clarity and persuasiveness and power in preaching the gospel, and ultimately to grant to someone in your life repentance and faith in the gospel and to use you in some way in that. Maybe that's the mighty work that you, you want to see God do that, use you in that. Maybe you're looking to God to do a mighty work of restoration in a broken relationship in your life. A relationship that the world might say is broken beyond repair. That you are praying that he would bring about repentance and forgiveness and trust and even joy in that relationship. A mighty work of healing in someone you love or in yourself, in your own body. Of course, we're praying for this for Sarah Brown right now, to remove affliction from her body, to renew vigor and strength to her, to extend her days by his mercy. We're, we're praying for this mighty work. We're longing for this mighty work. A mighty work of sustaining faith in suffering, a mighty work of, of, of keeping you going, even though nothing in this world would make sense for you to continue believing. What mighty work do you want to see God accomplish in your life right now? What mighty works do we want to see God accomplish through us here at Redeemer Church? We want, we want to see God do a mighty work of gospel transformation in us. We, we, we want to see God do something in us so that we become more like Christ together, that we, we fill up the measure of the stature of the fullness of the body of Christ here at Redeemer more and more. We want God to do that mighty work in us. We want Him to accomplish a mighty work of salvation in our community. We've been praying for this for years now. We long to see people from Friendship Road and people from our own spheres of interaction come to church, hear the gospel, believe in Jesus, receive baptism, and grow as his disciples. We want to see God do that. We're praying for a mighty work of provision for us, that God would provide the ability for us to perhaps expand our facilities, to support another pastor, to just be able to increase the the extent and quality of our ministry. That's something that we can't really do, but we're praying God would provide the means that he would do that because we, we want to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people. We're looking for God to accomplish a mighty work of gospel advancement to unreached people in the world. 
to send out laborers into the harvest field to provide what they need so that they can learn their language and their culture. The people have never heard Christ. Ultimately, to plant a healthy gospel church somewhere where there is no access to Jesus right now, that that church would actually send out more missionaries. Like That's a mighty work that we're praying for God to do through us. Church, with all of these things in mind, here's what the scripture tells us. God is able. God is able to do every single one of these things. And whatever is in your mind and heart, in addition to that, he is able to do that. As the children's song goes, my God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there is nothing my God cannot do. We believe that. But here's what we're going to learn today. Is that if we're going to experience these mighty works of God in our lives and in our church according to His will and in His wisdom, if we're going to experience His mighty works, then we must know God in His weakness. We must embrace who God is in His humility. We must believe not only in the power of God, but also in the plan of God that is centered in the cross of Jesus Christ. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 13. If you have not yet, our passage this morning is Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. I love preaching the Bible. (laughs) I love that sometimes I open a text and I think I know what it means, and then I study and I realize it's not what it meant, and and, and God just surprises us with deep things, and I pray that we'll be surprised this morning by a little small text in Matthew where Jesus visits his hometown. You know, we don't know much about Jesus' childhood, but the people in his hometown did, and we're going to see that this morning. And we're going to see that though many in Israel at large were coming to believe at this point in his ministry, they're coming to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, they didn't understand that entirely, but they, they were coming to that point at this time. The people from his hometown didn't join them in that. The people in his hometown where he grew up rejected him in unbelief. Let's read the passage. It's Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. These verses give us a picture of unbelief in Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to see three things about this unbelief. We're going to see the place of unbelief, the reason for unbelief, and the consequence of unbelief. The place of unbelief, the reason for unbelief, and the consequence of unbelief. Let's, let's begin by looking at the place of unbelief. 
Again, in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So we know from the Christmas story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was a small but extremely significant town in the Old Testament scriptures. It's the town of David, and it's where the Messiah was to come from. So Jesus was born, but, but Jesus actually grew up somewhere else in a little town called Nazareth. And, and here's what we need to know about Jesus' hometown. Nazareth was known for its insignificance. If you can be known for anything, so Nazareth was known for. It's insignificance. Now, there's a town near where I grew up. I grew up in Maryland. There's a, there's a town that has a name that I know you're going to love. The town is literally called Boring, Maryland. And if you drive to Boring, do you know what you're going to discover? Predictably, absolutely nothing. There's truly nothing to do in Boring, Maryland. The only reason someone goes to Boring, Maryland is to take a picture in front of the Boring, Maryland sign. Now, can you imagine if someone today came to you and said, I have found the Savior of the whole world, John from Boring. That, that's, that's what Philip told Nathaniel. <laughs> Philip came to Nathaniel in John 1. He said, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. John from Boring. Do you know what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's what Nazareth is known for. Nothing. <laughs> from Nazareth, really? Well, for once in Nazareth's insignificant history, the answer was actually yes. By the time we get to our passage today, Jesus of Nazareth had had a very public and extensive ministry of teaching and performing miracles throughout Galilee. His fame had spread down to Jerusalem. It had spread beyond the Jordan River. Great crowds followed him wherever he went. Something good had finally come from Nazareth. And Jesus, in our passage today, he goes back. He goes home to Nazareth. Now, in our day and age, when a small-town kid becomes a national celebrity, what does the town do for them when they come home? Throw them a parade, right? They give them the key to the city, they name a street after them. They name a latte after them, right? Like little, little towns usually take great pride when one of their own breaks through to stardom. But this is not the kind of treatment that Jesus received when he returned to Nazareth. Look at what happens next in our passage, verse 54. Again, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Literally, that last phrase means they were scandalized by him. Jesus' hometown for him was not a place of adulation. It was a place of unbelief. Now, why was that? Why did they respond this way? Let's look next at the reason for unbelief. And it's intriguing to notice, right off the bat, that there's no denial among the people of Nazareth about the wisdom and the works of Jesus. We see that in their first question at the end of verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? They acknowledge the wisdom of his teaching. They acknowledge the might of his works. They're seeing it. It's right in front of them. But this acknowledgement does not lead them to affirm his identity as the one sent from God. Instead, they begin to question that identity as they remember 
that this man, Jesus, was just another, another village boy. You can hear the conversation taking place among the people. Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? Wasn't this Joseph's son? This is the carpenter's son. Well, we know he didn't get it from Joseph. Maybe he got it from his mother. Well, no, no, his mother's Mary. I mean, we know Mary. Nothing special about Mary. What about his brothers and sisters? Well, they're all still here in Nazareth. There's, there's nothing significant about them. We're Nazarenes. Where, where did he get these works? And, and they, they begin, as they remember the family Jesus came from, to declare in their hearts, he couldn't be the Savior. He couldn't be the Savior because he's one of us. They took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. Now there's something going on here that's hugely significant for us to realize, and that is this, that though Jesus is fully God in his incarnation, listen, Jesus was indistinguishably human. Indistinguishably human. You wouldn't have known who Jesus was if you walked around Nazareth when you were when he was a kid. I don't mean that his character was indistinguishable. We know his character was impeccable, sinless. While most of us become convinced in our hearts of total depravity the first time that our child hits our hand away as we try to feed them, it's like, I didn't teach you that. <laughs> Never happened with Jesus, right? He was surely distinguishable in his respect, in his obedience, in his love. But the words of the people in this town confirm something for us, and that's that Jesus was undoubtedly and fully and indistinguishably human. From what they remember, there was nothing special about Jesus. He didn't perform miracles as a boy, like some of these false gospel documents claim. He didn't show off to the other kids, look, I can walk on water. He didn't have a glowing halo around his head. To put it in modern day language, Jesus still put his pants on one leg at a time. And if that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, well, why? why? He's human. He was the man, Christ Jesus, is what we read earlier. Jesus was fully, indistinguishably human. He took on full humanity. And the thing is, nobody knew this better than the people who watched him grow up. That's why Jesus says to them at the end of verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. You see, everywhere else, around Israel and in Galilee. They didn't know the boy Jesus. They knew Jesus the sermon giver. They knew Jesus the miracle worker, and that's all they knew of him. So it was easier for them to honor him, but in his hometown, they knew Jesus when he wore diapers. They knew Jesus when he learned to walk and learned to talk. They knew Jesus as he played games with the other kids. They knew Jesus as he worked in his dad's carpentry shop. These words, they took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. What, what was the scandal? Well, we know that whenever Jesus taught, he taught that he was the Messiah. He taught that the kingdom was coming in him. Here was the scandal. It was a scandalous thought that a humble man from a humble place such as Nazareth might be the promised king of God's kingdom. That was scandalous to them. How, there, there's no way that you could be the king. You're one of us. 
And though all the people were honoring him as a prophet sent from God, the people from his humble hometown of Nazareth refused to believe. They knew the boy Jesus, and they refused to believe that this hometown kid could be humanity's savior. And it wouldn't be long before the rest of Israel would join them in that. At this point in the story, Israel is excited about Jesus. Uh, They're they're seeing the miracles. They're hearing his teaching. And and they're beginning to think maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe maybe he's going to bring in the kingdom. But not for long. Jesus' story was not one of humble beginnings and a prosperous ending. No, it wouldn't be long before Jesus of Nazareth would be stripped naked, beaten raw, and nailed up to a Roman cross. And though there was a time when the people of Israel gave him a semblance of honor, once Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, they too saw him as an utter scandal. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, the notion of a crucified king became a stumbling block to faith. It was a scandal. The reason Jesus' hometown didn't believe in him The reason the Jews didn't believe in him and the reason many today don't believe in him is because there's nothing more scandalous and more foolish than claiming that a crucified man is the king of God's kingdom. That was the reason for their unbelief. From what they knew, he's just one of us. How could a humble kid like this be the savior of the world? Well, this leads to the final thing we need to see, the consequence of unbelief. You know, it's our natural human instinct that if someone doesn't believe in us, we want to prove them wrong, right? I mean, I feel this sometimes when I play basketball. If I miss a shot, I begin to feel that my teammates might not trust me enough to pass me the ball, and there's something in me that wants to prove that I'm a reliable shooter, even though I'm not. And so the next time I get the ball, I'm very tempted to shoot it again and show them what I can do. Again, there's a problem there. You know, they say shooters got to shoot. I'm not really a shooter. Well, that wasn't Jesus' problem, though, was it? I mean, he could have done more miracles to really convince them, right? You don't believe in me? Watch this. He could have overcome their unbelief with more mighty works, right? But look at the last verse of our passage. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's the exact opposite of what we would expect. We'd expect it to say, Because they didn't believe, Jesus did many mighty works in order to convince them. That's what we would do, but not Jesus. He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. These are important words, church. When Jesus left Nazareth, the blind still couldn't see. When Jesus left Nazareth, the deaf still couldn't hear. When Jesus left Nazareth, the lame still couldn't walk, the mute still couldn't talk. This was the consequence of unbelief. Because they didn't believe in the words of Jesus, they didn't get to experience the mighty works of Jesus. And even more pointedly, because they stumbled over his humility, they didn't get to experience his glory. Because they stumbled over his humility, they they did not get to experience his glory. And this observation leads to the main idea this morning for us. Should be on the screen for us here. If we reject the scandal of Christ crucified, we will never experience the power of Christ resurrected. 
If we reject the scandal of Christ crucified, we will never experience the power of Christ resurrected. You see, the scripture tells us that his death by crucifixion was not the end of Jesus of Nazareth. After he died, his stripped and torn and mutilated body was honorably wrapped in grave clothes and placed in the tomb of a rich man. But there was a much greater honoring to come than what man could do. On the third day, this dead body of Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected by the power of God, and it was transformed into an immortal and glorious body. The once crucified Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the grave and would never be placed back in the grave again. This little boy from Nazareth would become the miracle-working prophet from Galilee, who would become the crucified king of the Jews, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, was seated at the as the glorified king above all rule and power and authority forever, and he was given by the Father the name that is above every name. Jesus of Nazareth is now and forever the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the power of Christ resurrected. This is Jesus. But the only way to experience this resurrection power in our own hearts and our own lives is if we fully believe in and embrace for ourselves the scandal of Christ crucified. This is true for every aspect of our lives. This is the shape of the Christian life. I want to touch on four areas specifically that it means for us to believe in and embrace Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to say each one of these this way. First, if you reject the scandal of Christ crucified, if you reject the scandal of Christ crucified, you will never know the power of Christ resurrected to cleanse you from your sins. If you reject the scandal of Christ crucified, you will never know the power of Christ resurrected to cleanse you from your sins. So we are weak. In fact, we aren't just weak, we are powerless. When it comes to our sinful natures, we have no ability to cleanse ourselves from our guilt or free ourselves from sin's slavery. We cannot work our way out of our sinful condition on our own. But if we want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ over our sin, then you must embrace Christ crucified. He was crucified for our sins, bearing our guilt in our place, and it's only his loving sacrifice that can release us from our guilt before God. And unless we place our trust in Christ crucified, we can never be forgiven. Unless you place your trust in Christ crucified, you can never be forgiven of your sins. But even more, the cross doesn't just grant forgiveness, it's only at the cross that we can actually overcome sin's power. Why is that? Because as we behold the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, as we behold him, then the cross instills in our hearts a love for him that is greater than our love for sin. And so if you're in sin this morning, then I call you, embrace Christ crucified today. And you will experience the power of Christ resurrected to cleanse you from your sins. Second, if you reject the scandal of Christ crucified, you will never know the power of Christ resurrected to comfort you in your sufferings. 
Without the cross, you cannot know the power of Christ's comfort. We're all sufferers in this fallen world, and our suffering, we long for comfort. But here's the problem. How could someone who has only ever known absolute glory give us comfort in our suffering? How could a God who has never suffered truly comfort sufferers? Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, and he has suffered more deeply than you or I ever will. He has suffered the very worst a human can bear in absorbing the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. And because he suffered for us in this way, and then rose again in power and glory, he is uniquely able to sympathize with us and to comfort us and to give us grace we need in our suffering. And so when we come to understand that Jesus suffered for us through the cross, then our hearts begin to share an indescribably comforting fellowship with Christ when we suffer. Some of our sweetest times with the Lord are in suffering, and it's because he suffered first. And so if you're suffering, I call you to embrace the scandal of Christ crucified today, and you will experience the power of Christ resurrected to comfort you in your suffering. Third, if you reject the scandal of Christ crucified, you will never know the power of Christ resurrected to use you for his kingdom. I remember when I went to Bible school and uh, I and the rest of my classmates had dreams of doing great things for God, right? I mean, visions of many mighty works lay in our mind's eyes. God was going to use us to change the world, said 18-year-old Bible school Phil. But being at the very beginning of Bible school, the meaning of verses like Colossians 1.24 hadn't quite registered in my mind yet, where Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Or Philippians 1, 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the pattern of powerful ministry in the New Testament follows the same pattern as Jesus' ministry. The kingdom advances through suffering. The kingdom advances through the cross. Church, if we want to know the power of Christ resurrected and using us to build his kingdom, then we must embrace the pattern of Christ's sufferings. If we want to see Christ do mighty works in and through us, then we must not only believe he was crucified for us, but we must also embrace the life of suffering and loss ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. You see, death must be at work in us if life is to be at work in others. 
If we want to experience the power of Christ resurrected using us for his kingdom and for his glory to bring life to the lost, then we must embrace the scandalous pattern of Christ crucified as our own pattern. If we desire to be used by Christ for his kingdom, we need to embrace the scandal of Christ crucified today and we will experience the power of Christ resurrected in ministry. And fourth, if we reject the scandal of Christ crucified, then we'll never know the power of Christ resurrected to deliver us to eternal glory. If we reject the scandal of Christ crucified, we will never know the power of Christ resurrected to deliver us into eternal glory. One day, unless Christ returns first, each one of us will die. It truly could be today. It could be this year. It could be in 70 years. But that day will surely come. Our bodies will fail. Our hearts will stop beating. Death looms over every single one of our lives. Jesus died on the cross for sin. And he rose again. And he lives forever in a resurrected body. And he promises that he will raise his people up when he returns. But will that happen to you? Will you be raised on that day? Will you experience the mighty work of Jesus in raising your dead body to eternal glorious life with him? Only if you embrace the scandal of Christ crucified. Jesus said it, For if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in Philippians 3, from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. For those who embrace the pattern of the cross and lose everything today, the scandal of weakness, the scandal of humility, the scandal of suffering, there is resurrection life forever. If you realize that your body will fail and you desire to be raised with Jesus one day, then I call you to embrace the scandal of Christ crucified today and one day you will experience the power of Christ resurrected to deliver you into eternal glory. In church, the people of Nazareth stumbled over the humble humanity of Jesus. The people of Israel stumbled over the shameful crucifixion of Jesus. But in our time, in our place, a strange thing has happened. That's that the cross has become a much more palatable symbol of salvation. I mean, there are crosses everywhere, aren't there? They're on our jewelry. They're on our walls. When I used to work at the Christian bookstore, there was truly a rainbow-colored stuffed animal cross for sale. The cross of Jesus is just not a scandalous thought in our culture today, at least not on the surface. But if we press in, here is what is not palatable. Here is what is still scandalous. The cross as a symbol of the life of Christ's followers. This is the stumbling block today. Not merely that the Savior would suffer and die, but also that we must follow in his steps. 
believing in Christ crucified doesn't just mean believing that it happened or even believing that he died for me, but it means believing that this is our path too. It's only as we follow the path of the dishonored prophet, the crucified king, that we will experience the power of the resurrected king. So don't stumble over the cross of Christ this morning. Embrace it and follow him through death to resurrection life.